BookCraft is pleased to present Healings on the Temple Mount by Dr. Truman G. Madsen from the series Jesus of Nazareth. Healings on the Temple Mount. We go now in imagination up on the mount known as Temple Mount. Places on top of that mount had become significant both because Jesus taught some of his most impressive and insightful doctrine, but also because there, there were meetings with persons in need. And the sequel is instructive in every conceivable way. Beginning with chapter 8 of John, we read, Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple. Later on, the text tells us that he was in what we would call, by Jewish reckoning, the court of women. And says the record, all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. That's the rabbinical custom, to sit when you teach. And the Sermon on the Mount, for example, was given apparently as he sat, when he was set down, we read. The scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst of the crowd, they said, and this was a trap, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now, Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. What sayest thou? Now, we need to understand that all of the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, actually had attached to them in ancient lore a death penalty for violation. This was rarely carried out, but it was part of the law. It was, as we would say, on the books. Clearly, those who raised the question knew that either way Jesus answered, he could be in serious trouble. If he answered that she should be stoned, they could say, by what authority do you act in the role of the Sanhedrin? On the other hand, if he said she should not be, then they could say, how can you claim to represent the law and to say that not one jot or tittle of it shall pass? Now, it's clear from the context that Jesus was sitting, but as they asked the question, he stooped. So from a sitting posture, he reaches down and with his finger writes on the ground. And as though he heard them not is added, but that's an interpolation. There still is sand on the Temple Mount, and there are still rocks on the Temple Mount. And as a matter of fact, Jesus himself, at least twice, had been threatened with stoning in this same place. They persisted in asking, and he then lifted himself up. doesn't indicate that he stood, but at least up so that he was facing and said, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down. I believe this was a master stroke. Had he arisen by his chin and said, I dare any one of you to throw the first stone. 
It is not unlikely. Someone might have. But he simply turned long enough to say what he said and then turned away so that he's no longer even looking at the threatening crowd. The record says, They which heard it being convicted of their own conscience went out one by one, beginning at the eldest. Question, why beginning at the eldest? Well, I know a story about a modern church leader who was very elderly, perhaps in his 80s, but had two counselors who were very young in their late 20s. They have reviewed the case of a woman who has committed serious transgression. And when the stake president confides with and counsels with, he asks, what do you recommend? Each counselor said in turn quickly, cut her off. And he sat back and said, according to the story, oh, brethren, I'm glad the Lord is an old man. I am an old man, and I am going to forgive the woman. The one who told me the story said she became one of the great leaders of the church. It would have been a terrible mistake because of her contrition and repentance to, quote, cut her off. Well, those who have been over the road, those who have borne, in the phrase of modern language, the heat and burden of the day, often have more compassion than the young. In any case, they begin to withdraw until no one is left. Jesus turns and says to the woman, Woman, where are thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? And out of what we must assume was both terror and deep remorse, she said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. That ends the episode in the King James. But in the inspired version, there is a revelatory additional sentence. It is, And the woman glorified God from that hour and believed on his name. So, the forgiveness was not arbitrary. This is not a case of somehow allowing a person transgression and closing your eyes. This is a case of the kind of powerful forgiveness that leads to, inspires, moves a person to complete change. She glorified God from that hour and believed on his name. There are two questions that remain puzzling. Why was the man involved, not brought to judgment? And why, second, is there no indication of what the woman felt or did in terms of forgiving that man? We know from the sources that the principle of forgiveness is required of all, that if we refuse to forgive others, then we are burning the bridge over which we ourselves must pass. And with that in mind, we have this statement, ever keep in exercise the principle of mercy, 
and be ready to forgive your brother, or we could add sister, on the first intimations of repentance and of asking forgiveness. And should we even forgive our brother or even our enemy before they repent or ask forgiveness, our Heavenly Father would be equally as merciful unto us. Once in the car with Elder Spencer W. Kimball, we fell to discussing his book, The Miracle of Forgiveness. He said, would you like to know my favorite story in that book? Yes, I would. It happens to be a true story. A woman came to me in a state conference and said, Brother Kimball, do you remember me? He struggled and finally said, Oh, sister, I'm sorry. I, I meet so many. I, I just... And she said, Oh, thank the Lord. He was puzzled. And then she explained, Many years ago, I came to your office and I poured out on your desk a story of sin, maybe the worst that's ever been told you. And you started me on the way back. And if you have forgotten, maybe the Lord has. Well, that's the glorious promise. He who repents and forsaketh his sins, I, the Lord, remember them no more. No more the monkey on the back. No more the burden of guilt. But they are no longer remembered in the heavens against us. That is the privilege that is symbolized in this true story and in the ancient one. It's clear from the overall teaching of Jesus Christ that no one can receive forgiveness unless he gives it. This is a principle. He who would be forgiven must himself forgive. And we have at least one clue in the teaching as to how. He says, this in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, pray for your enemies. Now that's completely different than praying against them. We can indulge ourselves in the spirit of vengeance in praying against others, and especially those who have hurt us or who are continuing to, who haven't shown the first sign of change. But we're not saying here that you purchase the forgiveness of God for yourself by forgiving your neighbor. We're saying in the spirit of Jesus that only your willingness to forgive others is proof of your own repentance. This means a certain abandonment of self-love. This means a changeover into the condition of reconciliation. But it has to be complete in order to be genuine. Hence, in the Lord's Prayer, we are asked to pray in a way that says, I will put it negatively, do not forgive me, O Lord, one whit more than I am willing to forgive all others. That's the meaning of the sentence. Forgive us our trespasses 
as, meaning in likeness to, or just as much as, we forgive the trespasses of others. This is put beautifully in one sentence in the first epistle of John, who is known as the Apostle of Love. He says, We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. Even those who have hurt us, even those who are apparently not disposed at all to act differently, yes. We know a modern story of a man who, in celebration, strangely, of the birth of a child, drinks himself into a stupor, drives, and has a head-on collision with another car. The result, the death of the other man's wife and a daughter. Those agonies are hard to measure, but one day that driver heard a knock at his door and opened to see the man who had been victimized. He recoiled, thinking the man had come to seek vengeance, but then heard him say, Do not be afraid. I have come to tell you. I forgive you. That is the spirit of Jesus Christ. We turn now to a second event that is temple-related because at the moment when Jesus himself is being challenged and when they take up stones to cast at him, Jesus hides, goes out of the temple, going through, it says, the midst of them, and so passed by. And now the next chapter begins, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. Now, he likely was begging, probably in the thoroughfare at the base of the Temple Mount, which was very busy. His disciples say to him, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Notice the two presumptions. One, it has to be one or the other. Either this man sinned or his parents which is a long-standing Jewish tradition. If there is affliction in life, according to the punitive theory of evil, it is because of sin. So that's the one presumption. The other is that that young man could have been a sinner before his birth, a hint of a Jewish tradition that there was indeed a pre-mortal life. Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents. Well, that must have had their attention. He then added, But that the works of God should be made manifest in him. Earlier on the Temple Mount, Jesus had met a man who had been, as you recall, infirm for 38 years, and lying as he did on his small pad had attempted on an annual occasion when the legend was that the water was troubled to be first into the water because they believed, perhaps superstitiously, that would be the moment of healing. He had always failed. Others were, of course, far more agile. Now Jesus sees him, having lifted him literally from his sickbed, and says to him, 
Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon thee. One could assume that on one reading he's saying to him that his infirmity, his paralysis, resulted for sin. Or one could assume he was saying there are worse things in the world even than terrible health problems. Do not sin lest you have the kinds of living death that follow sin. In any case, the idea that the two are related, that healing, and especially that of the master healer, applies both to one's sins and to one's sicknesses, runs as a thread through the entire New Testament. We have, for example, the statement of James, speaking of administering in our language. He says, let those who are sick call for the elders of the church, let them anoint him with oil, pray over him, and the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up, and now listen, and if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. There is a connection of whole healing. The man who has sufficient faith to receive the power of the Lord in the healing of physical difficulty also has faith to receive the healing power of Christ for his sins. And usually, in sickness, and especially persistent sickness, we become aware of the truth that we have heretofore ignored. We are dependent for our very lives on God. Well, now Jesus turns to this man who was born blind. And this, in the setting, incidentally, of the Feast of Tabernacles, which is a feast of light, and says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And then when he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground, made some clay, and anointed the eyes of the blind man, and then said, go wash in the pool of Siloam. Well, the pool of Siloam is now known as the Gihon. It is the a pool at the end of an ancient tunnel known as Hezekiah's Tunnel. And scripturally is significant because Solomon, for one, was crowned here, according to 1 Kings. He was instructed to go to the Gihon. And there was a uh, metaphorical tradition that because of the long and smooth flow of the water through the tunnel, this was symbolic of a long and smooth rain. Moreover, Isaiah, the great messianic prophet, the prophet whom we are told writes words that are great. Isaiah, the prophet, was told to go to this same spring in connection with the prophecy that everyone knows, namely that a virgin would conceive and bring forth a son who would be known as Emmanuel, God with us. So that pool was well-known and traditional and close. It's only a slight distance from the Temple Mount down into the area of the city of David. So this man went his way and washed, and all is summed up in two words, and came seeing. But that is not the end of the narrative, because from the moment that happens, there is a whole new set of opposition. The neighbors, were told, and others who had seen him begging and blind, 
began to speculate, and some said, no, this isn't the man, couldn't be the man. But he said, I am he. And then they say, well, how were thine eyes opened? He answers, a man that is called Jesus made clay and anointed mine eyes and said unto me, go to the pool of Siloam. I went, I washed, I received sight. Then they said, where is he? And he replied, I know not. Then these same people apparently brought him before the Pharisees. And on the Sabbath day, this all occurs. One of many instances where Jesus apparently deliberately chooses to do well on the Sabbath in violation of certain fencings of the law that made that illegal. Now the Pharisees ask the same question, the same answer. And now we hear some of the opposition. This man, meaning Christ, is not of God because he keepeth not the Sabbath day. Others said, how can a man that is a sinner do such miracles? And they were divided. Now they say again to the blind man, what sayest thou? And he replied, and this tells us that he had faith. He is a prophet. But the Jews did not believe this, or even that he had been blind and received his sight. So they went to the parents, asked them, is this your son? His parents say, this is our son. And he was born blind. But now, and this tells us how lethal the opposition was thought to be, they know, the parents, that they must be careful in what they say about Jesus. So they say, by what means he now seeth, we know not. Or even who hath opened his eyes? Ask him. He's of age. And it explains they feared the Jews. So again they call the man that was blind, and again they say, what is this? Is not this man a sinner? And the man replies, I know not. I know that whereas I was blind, I now see. Now let me help you with the relationship of all this to an event that has recently occurred. I've mentioned the Feast of Tabernacles. That feast included the following procedures. The high priests took of their own pants and made wicks of them for what? For the almost bathtub-sized vats into which they put olive oil. Seventy-five-foot towers were then erected on the east side of the Temple Mount and during the Feast of Tabernacles at night, and especially for a ceremony known as the water drawing from the Spring of Gihon, they lit up these marvelous torches. In the Talmud it says that anyone who had not seen Jerusalem lighted up at night had never seen a beautiful city. He who had never seen Jerusalem in its glory had never seen a beautiful city. Well, the blind man had never seen any of these, but now had both sight and light. So now Jesus hears that he has been cross-examined, and he finds the man and asks, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? 
We've read earlier he believed he was a prophet. But now, what about that phrase? Jesus said unto him, Thou hast both seen him, and it is he that talketh with thee. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Now apparently there were persons standing nearby in disapproval. And Jesus says in their hearing, For judgment I am come into this world, that they which see not might see, and that they which see might be made blind. And some of the Pharisees took offense and said, Are we blind also? And Jesus said simply, If ye were blind, ye should have no sin. But now ye say, We see. Therefore your sin remaineth.